0: You're listening to 2 for Tea. i I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Sean B. Carroll. Sean is an award-winning scientist, writer, educator, and film producer, and vice president for science education at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and a chair of biology at the University of Maryland. His last book was the basis for Emmy-winning nature film, The Serengeti Rules. Which book was the which book was was that? Was that the Evo Devo book, Sean?
1: No, no. The Serengeti Rules was really about ecology, and that was just a few years ago. So, uh, Endless Forms Most Beautiful is the Evo Devo book,
0: right? And I'm going to talk to Sean today about uh, two books. His latest book, A Series of Fortunate Events: Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life, and You, which is quite a um, a breezy, uh, easy breezy page turner. Um, I don't mean to imply that it's in any way dumbed down, but it's a um, very clear and simple explanation of some complicated uh, scientific ideas to do with probability, chance, and luck. And I would also like to talk to you about your book, "Endless Forms Most Beautiful: The Science of Evo-Devo." I know that was published a few years ago, so maybe if if anything in that book is out of date, you can let me know. But um, those ideas, um, the ideas you and your co-authors present there were part of a, a discovery that revolutionized evolutionary biology. So welcome, Sean.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Let's begin by talking about chance. What is it that, why is chance and pro, why are chance and probability so difficult for people to understand? And, How much less likely uh, is our existence on this planet than most people probably think?
1: (laughs) Well, let's break that down into two parts. So the first question, (laughs) I think chance is just underappreciated. I don't think we think about it enough in terms of our individual or collective lives or the story of life on Earth. And so one motivation for writing the book is to bring a bunch of discoveries, a number of them happened just in the last 50 years, that I think people have even heard of, but maybe not thought about it in the context of chance. And when you, you know, I mean, complex math is hard. For, you know, the reason we we avoid it is that math can get hard. But I think that, you know, we have kind of a love-hate relationship with chance, right? We flock to casinos. We love games of chance. We, um, you know, we just really enjoy it. We we love that thrill of possibly winning and all that, even though we, we know deep down the, the odds are against us. Um, on the other hand, but when you think about chance and it's the fact that we really do live in a chance driven world, um, that's an unsettling idea for many who would rather see some intention in the world, some design in the world, somebody looking out for us in the world. So I I think that's, we have these mixed feelings about chance and, uh, I explore them both in the book
0: so one of the things that you point out in the book is the you talk about the um the importance of the exact timing of the asteroid strike um the one that caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and you say that history would have been completely different had that asteroid hit half an hour sooner or later than it did can you explain more about that
1: sure so this is this is this is what I'm really trying to bring home, which is probably everyone's heard about this asteroid impact. 66 million years ago, a six-mile-wide asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula and triggered a mass extinction. And that mass extinction had profound consequences for life on Earth. About three-quarters of all plant and animal species went extinct uh, at the time and in the following years. And it cleared the globe of the large dinosaurs. And in their absence, it's where when mammals really flourished. So mammals had been around for about 100 million years, but they were generally small-bodied, you know, only like, you know, a kilogram in size. And they became larger than they had ever been in history in a really short period of time and branched out and then became the largest animals in the ocean and, and on land. So it's quite clear that without the asteroid, the world would be really different. Now, that asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula, and geologists now appreciate perhaps as little as 1%, which is maybe no more than, say, 10 or 12% of the Earth's surface has rocks of the right kind of mineral composition that, when vaporized, can cause this toxic stew that led to the mass extinction 66 million years ago. So what that means is that, you know, when the target matters, you have to think that this asteroid going 50,000 miles an hour, had it entered the atmosphere just a bit earlier, it lands in the Atlantic Ocean. It If it enters a bit later, it lands in the Pacific Ocean and doesn't hit a target that can trigger this mass extinction. So that that chunk of rock that may have been circulating around the solar system for 4 billion years, you know, 30 minutes on that given day 66 million years ago has made all the differences to how the world is today versus how it would have been. And, and that's, that's just how slim <laughs> the chances are that we and the things that we look at uh, even came into existence.
0: So an asteroid that hit in the ocean wouldn't have caused a, a mass extinction of that kind.
1: Uh, unlikely. I think it, it has to do with the rock content. So if it happened to hit sort of the right mix of sulfur-containing and carbonate-containing rocks, but those are relatively scarce um, on uh, on the Earth's surface. Uh, I don't know what the effect of the ocean would have been in buffering that. I mean, it made a heck of a splash because it also hit uh, on the Yucatan. It, it also hit uh, a part of the ocean, but um, what was blasted into the atmosphere, especially all the sulfur that was in that, that deflects sunlight. So for perhaps 10 to 30 years, most sunlight was blocked out, reaching the earth. And that, of course, caused plants to wither and die, food chains to collapse, everything that was dependent upon plants and dependent upon things that ate plants, all these things collapsed. So we really trace the destructive power to the all the Chemicals that were liberated by the by the asteroid impact, and that very much depends upon where the asteroid hits.
0: Mm, thank you. Another thing that I found fascinating in the in the chance book was you talk about quantum fibrillation in the structure of DNA um, and the way in which quantum mechanics impacts and the, the quantum characteristics of DNA molecules. Impact the possibility of mutations. Would you like to explain that?
1: I know that sounds <laughs> sounds terribly complicated, but it, it reflects in some ways. It's beautifully
0: clearly explained in the in the book. I mean, I was I I listened to this book on audio whilst I was running, which is partly why I'm more familiar with the Evo Devo book, which I actually read, uh, and I did have to. Rewind a couple of times when you got to this
1: section. (laughs) Yeah, well this this is actually where it helps to look at pictures. But here's here's the point. People have heard the word mutation used and it has a connotation that, you know, like mutation is an error. Mutation is could be is harmful. Okay. But what we now understand many, many years now studying the DNA molecule. So DNA molecule contains the genetic code for the making of each one of us. And changes happen in that code when new individuals are made in our parents' gonads, to be explicit. And those changes in DNA that we call mutations, we now understand that those mutations happen because of the intrinsic properties of the bases in DNA. They're they're unavoidable. What happens is that there are bases in DNA exist in two different chemical states, and when they oscillate, or as I said in the book, fibrillate between two states, if that happens to occur at just the moment, and I mean one one-thousandth of a second, when the machinery for copying DNA is passing by, the wrong base will get inserted in the copying of DNA, and that is a mutation. It's unavoidable. It's, as I said, it's the intrinsic property of DNA. And that, what I'm trying to express in the book is that mutation is a feature, not a bug in DNA. And mutation is so important because mutation is the source of all diversity on this planet. Diversity of every individual human, diversity of every individual other creature, the diversity, the entire biosphere, has diversified because of this mechanism of how DNA changes. The only way that the traits that make up each creature can change is through changes in DNA. So we understand that fundamentally sort of built into the DNA molecule is the mechanism for its change over time. And that is uh, quite a revelation in terms of our understanding of, of, of how we've, the world's been generated.
0: Because it ex- exists in two forms, right? Um, right. right. Uh, ketone and enol form yes and the keto, keto and enol
1: form right
0: keto is the more common form but sometimes because of this quantum fibrillation a hydrogen atom can get relocated right. changing it from the keto to the enol form and that shift to the rarer enol form lasts this minuscule amount of time the 1/1000th one right. of a second right. but during that time if it's copying if a copying process is happening at that time, um, the uh, wrong base will be um, attached to the co- the wrong complementary base will get
1: that's right copied. It's, so see, you understand this perfectly. I didn't go to the keto and enol vocabulary, but you've got it perfectly. And what this means, you know, for individuals, for anyone listening, is that in each one of us, there are thirty or forty mutations on average that weren't in either of our parents. These are new events that happened in the making of the sperm and egg that made us. Happens in all creatures, but happens in humans. 30 or 40 changes like that in 3 billion base pairs that make us up. So it's a small number of changes, but you can imagine with life having been around a very long time and with large numbers of individuals, there's a lot of mutation going on.
0: Mm. I, I My mind was slightly blown when I got to that part, and I realized that this capacity for mutation was part of the nature of the dna molecule itself um rather than i thought it was the um most mutations were caused by more prosaic copying errors uh, or fake proofreading errors or um perhaps damage from uv radiation or something of that kind um but yeah. in the book, you you explain that ninety nine percent of mutations are actually caused by this quantum property, basically of DNA, that it exists in these two different structures, uh, which are called uh, tautomers.
1: Right, it's exactly right. So this is this is the most prevalent mechanism. You're absolutely right, though, to bring up environmental factors. So ultraviolet light that we get from the sun. This is. Uh, Increases errors in the copying of DNA, so it's mutagenic, and this is why we're very worried about skin cancer. For example, is is that uh, that's the most common uh, concern with respect to um, mutations in our uh, body cells by ultraviolet mutations. Frequency of mutation can be increased by other chemicals, such as those things found in tobacco smoke, because some of these compounds can uh, interact with the DNA molecule and make essentially that copying. Inaccurate. So we know of other mechanisms for mutation, but we should understand that even under a a perfect environment, uh, changes will happen because of the intrinsic properties of DNA. And I'm glad your mind is blown because probably one of my major hopes in the book was that I I think these are some of the astonishing stories, if you like, that science has to tell about our world. That, um, you know, we live in a chance driven world and uh, events at this scale are responsible for, you know, the making of giraffes and butterflies and all of human diversity. I mean, it's, it is it uh, is pretty astonishing, but we do understand this at quite a deep mechanistic level.
0: Uh, one of the things that really struck me that you emphasize strongly in both that book and in the Evo Devo book, which I want to get to in a moment, um, is that I was just imagining I mean how many you said it was forty or fifty mutations for each new individual. that's a very, very tiny number of mutations, given how many uh how many genes we have in the genome right and i I actually thought that mutations were more common, and you talk at a lot of length about how much how much sort of protective redundancy there is within the genetic code. So there's a number of of, um, synonyms, several amino acid sequences, uh, several combinations of base pairs often code for the same amino acid. Right. Um, And there's also also only about how much of our DNA is actually non- neither coding nor regulatory
1: probably 95% mm.
0: so it's i mean my my idea as i was reading that although i don't know if this is a silly idea was that it's it's as if the the important dna is swaddled in layers and layers of bubble wrap
1: <laughs> in effect well it's it's a little different because remember mutations are happening at random and this is this is kind of the hardest thing to get our heads around which is sort of just picture you know, three billion letters of DNA code out in front of you, those 30 or 40 mutations are going to land anywhere and everywhere in that code. It's just by chance that it's going to 95% of the time land in DNA that has no function. The other percent of the time, it's going to land in places where it may not have any effect on any trait in that individual for lots of reasons. You brought up synonyms as one. In uh, another, there's a lot of there's a fair amount of buffering in our development and physiology that we can tolerate. You know, we have two copies of most genes, at least women do. Men some men only have one copy of things on their X chromosome, and so even if we get one of these mutations, we may have a perfectly intact gene on the the other um, copy of that chromosome. So uh, th- there's there's lots of buffering so that this mutation process you know while it happens it is not catastrophic um but it is the source of variation and that variation of course is the source of all evolutionary diversity so it's it's really important but it's it's you know at a at a level that is you know not catastrophic not de- usually not detrimental to the individual
0: right i think the other thing that i hadn't really been quite so aware of is just how small an advantage a mutation needs to give you in order to give an organism in order for that, um, organisms with that mutation to be selected for. So you yeah. talked about uh, um, if if a mutation causes um, an organism to leave, for example, 101 offspring, um, I guess this is not a human, um, but some <laughs> lower, some organism that has many offsprings. Right. If it, if instead of one hundred one hundred offspring, it causes the organism to leave one hundred and one offspring, that mutation will spread throughout the population. Right, and that's 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 extremely counterintuitive to me. Yeah. That very tiny incremental changes. Um, make such an enormous difference over evolutionary time,
1: and, and I would say maybe the most familiar analogy I would give is compounding interest. You know, that's a one percent advantage, but if you compound one percent year after year after year after year, you know, you'll double your money in seventy years, right? And so then you'll be much more prevalent. You'll double again in another seventy years, and so um, and then for some organisms, their generation time is you know much faster than a year, so. Uh, you can see how this will spread, how it will increase in frequency, even with just a, a 1% advantage. Now, sometimes the selective advantage is much larger. If you look at things like color matching against a background, a very common game played in the animal kingdom is sort of the game of hide-and-seek, which is often if you're potential prey, you're blending into the background where you live. You're a dark animal against a dark background or a light animal against a light background or, you know, somewhat camouflaged animal against a complex background. And, you know, there you can look at selective advantages, you know, of, of matching color that may be in that order of 50 or 60% advantage. And that all make, I think that makes sense to everybody listening that, you know, it's pretty easy for a predator to pick off a mismatched prey because it stands out against the background. Um, But there's lots of cases where we studied this very carefully and where it's been studied carefully in the wild. So you can imagine if some mutation arises that enables an animal to blend against the background better. And a a well-known example is, for example, mice that evolve dark color and allow them to, for example, live on lava flows. Um, They're all over the American Southwest, for example. Um, There's a huge advantage to that mutation um, for those mice living on those black lava flows, and those mutations can spread through a population just in a matter of a couple decades. So uh, it's it's again hard to get our head around, but part of that is that you know it's the limited sort of timescale of human experience. And we have to realize that, you know, these creatures that surround us, you know, their ancestors have been around for hundreds of thousands and millions of years. And this process has been going on all that time. So, you know, a century is a blink of an eye. A millennium is a blink of an eye. Um, You know, 10,000 years isn't much time biologically or geologically speaking, but it is plenty of time for vast changes to occur in, in populations of creatures.
0: One of the things you say, and this connects back to the, um, Evo Devo book. One of the things you say in that book is that the reason why so many animals have evolved melanism, have evolved darker forms of the same animal, for example, or have been able to change their coloring is because the genes that, um, the genes that affect melanin production don't have many other functions. So the specific gene that is making the mice darker, um, making dark mice, doesn't have other functions in mice. And so therefore, when there's a mutation in that gene, the mouse embryo is still still, um, viable, and the mouse doesn't have other disadvantages, whereas many other genes are um, multifunctional. So a mutation in the gene, um, which might be advantageous for one of the gene's functions, will actually be disadvantageous for other functions of the gene.
1: That's right. That's right. So this was, I think, this is a huge advance in understanding. Let me let me kind of back up a little bit. We'll stay with the mouse yes. example yes, for a please, second. But kind uh, of back up, back up, up. To, to the history of this, which is um, so that's true. A uh, There's a gene called uh, shorthand. It's called MC1R. Which has been associated with, for example, melanic forms of all sorts of beautiful animals, melanic jaguars and melanic uh, other sorts of melanic cats, South American, African cats, all sorts of birds, flycatchers, banana keats, snow geese. It goes on and on. And um, this is a gene that regulates the um, deposition of melanin, as you said, the black pigment that you can see in, in all sorts of creatures, not just furry animals, but this is an and birds but you see this in reptiles as well and so that gene is kind of free to play uh because as you said there's no other consequences to the animal that we know of for changes in this gene but lots of other genes that are involved in patterning the body so this melanin gene we're talking about it sort of gives you an all or nothing response but when you look at patterns stripes spotted patterns um those patterns making a spatial pattern say on the coat of an animal this is a this requires more inputs and the sorts of genes that are involved in creating spatial patterns usually have multiple jobs and if you mutate the sort of the functional part of that gene it will have collateral damage in other or collateral effects in other parts of the animal and that generally is therefore a mutation that is deleterious overall to the animal and won't be sort of uh, accommodated by evolution. It will be actually swept out of the population. Um, And so what we've understood is there's a, maybe in us, maybe in the order of a thousand or 1200 genes that are involved in body building and body patterning that are under these really strong constraints. And let me just back up again to get, to tell you where we got there. And let me just set the puzzle before we knew these, these, uh, these, Discoveries before we had these thoughts. Way back in the early 1980s, if you asked a biologist, "Well, how do you build a a human, or how do you build a hand, or how do you build any animal?" (laughs) it was kind of a blank answer because we really didn't know how anatomy was encoded in DNA. How do you get five fingers? How do you get the right length of things? How do you put them in the right position? You know, how are they? How do you make them symmetrical? We didn't know this, but there was a huge explosion in the understanding of the genetic control of development uh, beginning in the 1980s and exploding throughout the 80s and 90s. And we got to understand this special group of genes. I refer to them as like the, the genetic toolkit because these are genes that, that are used in many different ways to build and shape our bodies. And there might be an individual gene that could have 10 or 15 different roles. It it may play a role in the building of the eyes, the building of the pancreas, the wiring of part of the nervous system, et cetera. And it does all of those things in a very context-specific way. But if you damage that gene, it can affect all of those functions. It's catastrophic. Usually the animal dies before um, before it's born. So we understood that there's a really special set of genes, and those are... You know, important from understanding, well, the effects of mutations, but they're really important for studying evolution because evolutionary change in form, in the size, shape, number, pattern of bodies and body parts, um, these changes have to take place by changing the way these genes get used. And so we understand that the way bodies evolve is not by changing the genes themselves, but changing the way they're used. And that's the big insight from from evo devo these genes have been around for hundreds of million years in the animal kingdom they shape the development of all animals in the animal kingdom and they um are parts of very complex sort of choreography in the in the building and shaping of structures so yes mutations in there are catastrophic but there are certain kinds of mutations that can be accommodated and those are the mutations that have shaped the diversity of the animal kingdom
0: right so when i was um when i was learning Biology at Level at school, uh, which was back before the Cambrian explosion. Uh, <laughs> but I remember, I remember learning that natural selection is there are mutation, genetic mutations in genes, and then um, so that's the chance element. Uh, mutations in genes, and then there is selection among uh, those genetic variants and wasn't until i think 20 years later that we discovered that most um and it was it was it was kind of a mystery as to why since its mutations if its mutations in genes that cause differences in organisms that are preferentially selected for and eventually um if you uh, if enough of these muti- mutations build up um you you Have a new species. I think it takes about two million years to separate two million years of mutation separate species. Something like that was the rule of thumb we were taught. And I remember being puzzled even then as to why, if that is the case, we share 99% of our DNA with chimpanzees. And since then we've discovered that, um, it's the mutations are not happening Um, so much in the DNA, but in these genetic, uh, in these genetic toolkits and switches. Right. Um, I don't know if you've, sorry, have you you heard the Evo Devo song?
1: Yes, I did. I was quite tickled. Yes. It's
0: it's really nicely summarized in there. He says, um, adult and. Embryo rarely evolve in the genes of the genome, safer the mutation, aimed at regulation, keep the building blocks and switch their activation. Um, explain that. <laughs> a little yes, bit more.: it's, it's,
1: it's a little catchier in song than book form. So <laughs> you mentioned switches, so let's we, we're, we're starting to introduce some some ideas here. So the toolkit the, these, the, the, there are genes that encode proteins, and proteins do the work, okay? But where they do that work? and how much of the protein gets made, and the choreography of the turning on and off of genes in the body in time and space, this is all regulated by elements in the DNA that I'll just refer to as, as switches, switching genes on and off. And those switches, which are usually adjacent to the gene itself, where we see the, the gene is encoded, these switches are all over um, the genome, and it's the activity at the switches that is running this sort of choreography, determining the on-off state of genes. And so it's mutations in the switches that can change when and where a gene is turned on and off. And the beautiful thing about this is that generally switches control some discrete feature of that gene's activity. It might just control whether it's on or off in a little narrow part of the body. But overall, a gene might have a few dozen switches. And so the switches give you the sort of the modularity, the independence of gene function so that an individual mutation can can affect one feature of the body without affecting any other feature. So the discovery of these switches, the discovery of these regulatory elements and how mutations affect them, that gave us essentially the aha moment that, oh, wait a second, you don't mutations within the genes themselves are very tricky. They can have these catastrophic sort of collateral effects. But mutations outside the genes and the switches can affect just one aspect of how that gene is used and is much better tolerated by uh, the developing creature. So it's telling us that a lot of the action in evolution that we would be interested in, how, for example, the animal kingdom has um, been built and evolved, is out in these switches, not in the genes that are so much easier for us to see. These, these switches were for a long time kind of, um, you know, terra incognito for biologists because they're, they're, they're very hard to identify. They have to be sort of identified experimentally, and um, they, they, don't, they don't give their locations away too easily. But once we find them, they, they, uh, they, they illuminate a lot about how, how um, the building and, and evolution of animals works. So for listeners who aren't familiar with these switches, it's it's really a discovery about a, a, a key part of how genes are controlled in time and space in the body. And when you think about time and space, and you think about by controlling time and space, you control events in time and space, that's how you shape a three-dimensional creature and shape the variety of three-dimensional creatures that we love.
0: Uh, yeah, so many of the genes... As you explain in the book, the genes for building large animals predated the Cambrian explosion, so predated my undergraduate days. <laughs> um, so tell me if I'm wrong here, but there seems to be an interesting analogy between how things work on an evolutionary scale and how things work in the individual cells of the body. Absolutely. So every cell of your body has all of your DNA in it, right? right. I mean, apart from sex, Sex cells, germline cells. Yes. Um, So,
1: and red red cells, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Yes. Um, Red blood cells, right? Right. So, you know, a cell that is there in your liver also has all the instructions for making a lung and, uh, or for creating muscle cells um, or for creating retinal pigment or whatever it might be. Just that only certain functions are switched on in that
1: cell. That's right. Absolutely, great description. So, you know, a couple hundred different cell types in the body, virtually all of them with the same DNA. They are different because they express different combinations of genes among the twenty thousand genes or so that we have. And so, that program at the individual cell level is—it's a very good, very good description to build a creature that has you know liver and lung and all these different types of cells and organize those cells in three-dimensional space into tissues and organs. that all involves this choreography of turning genes on and off. That's how fundamentally important it is.
0: Um, and it's similar in uh, when we look at the larger evolutionary picture. So a mouse has almost all the same genes as we do. That's it's right. just that those genes are used in different ways, different things, different uh, genetic switches enable those genes to have uh, different effects on the organism.
1: Be- beautifully put. And that and that was a stunning finding. I there's no yeah. way I can overstate yeah. that finding because when I went off to study it turns out genes of a fruit fly I had I had mentors that said to me, you know, you're essentially stepping off the edge of the earth because the bias in biology at that time was that the genetic recipe for making a fruit fly would have nothing in common with the genetic recipe for making say a human or a mouse, you know, furry creatures. But as it turns out, these Bodybuilding genes were first discovered in fruit flies, and the stunning discovery was, oh my goodness, you know, humans and mice have them, and they work in very similar ways. The, the very finest details are different, but basically we have the same genes. So evolutionary diversity, at least at the anatomical level, is not so much about the genes you have, but how you use them. And that mice and humans use them in different ways, and you get different creatures. And giraffes use them in different ways, and snakes use them in different ways. But oh my goodness, the genes that build those bodies are so incredibly similar.
0: Right. So the PAX6 gene, for example, which is is uh, instrumental in eyesight.
1: That's right.
0: That that gene predates the Cambrian. Is um, right. And probably was used to create some kind of light-sensitive patch in some very early, maybe, um, unicellular animals. Um, You say, I'm going to quote you, the many types of animal eyes all took the PAX-6 road. That's right. Natural selection has not forged many eyes completely from scratch. There is a common genetic ingredient to making each eye type. These common genetic ingredients must date deep back in time.
1: That's kind That's right. of amazing. <laughs> it, it it is amazing, and I got to tell you, Ona, that that you know, I, as I'm looking back, you know, at at trying to look back a, a good number of decades to to think about what I was eager to know as a young scientist, and and how much collectively the the scientists, the scientific community I, I'm part of, has learned over this time, and. Even when you bring these things up, the the the, the thrill and, and astonishment is is still there for me. And I was there when these discoveries happened, and, and some discoveries I had a hand in. Uh, with respect to the eye, everyone you know, people would look at the at a, the eye of a bug and the eye of you know a human and the eye of you know an octopus and say, oh, you know, these are totally different animals. These you must have invented eyes. The estimate was that eyes have been invented fifty or sixty times in animal evolution.
0: Yes, but when con- you re- convergent evolution. I remember learning about that in school. Yeah,
1: yeah. But as it turns out, when you realize that they're all built using the gene Pax6, and then you look back in time and you realize uh, essentially the counterpart of this Pax6 gene exists in jellyfish, and in this and is used in building the simplest essentially the simplest eye you can imagine on the face of the earth. That what what's happened is that deep in evolutionary time, you keep referring to the Cambrian. So just to let everybody know, we're talking about a period over 500 million years ago when animal yes, life was- Yes, when,
0: when I was at Cambridge.
1: <laughs> you were at Cambridge, and <laughs> I won't even say where the heck I must have been. But um, uh, that all of this machinery, this toolkit for building animals is deep in animal history, deep in evolutionary history, over half a billion years old. And that everything we see in the fossil record from trilobites to dinosaurs to everything we see walking the earth today has essentially inherited this toolkit from those distant ancestors. And that that toolkit has been used in different ways to sculpt, you know, all this great variety of the animal kingdom. It's an astonishing thought. It's an astonishing revelation about the, the story of life on the planet. And so exciting that we were able to put our hands on the genetic machinery that has built the animal kingdom. In 1982, we had none of this, nothing, zero, nada. And all this unfolded and some of these really exciting and stunning discoveries unfolded in like the next 10 years after that. But it's taken quite a long time to sort of explore lots and lots of aspects of how this diversity has been built. But it's, on um, the one hand, it, it both unified the animal kingdom, but also told us exactly how diversity is achieved. And from a, you know, I think if, if Dar, if we could share one discovery with Darwin, you know, since his time 160 years ago um, I think that one would delight him the most because he thought very much in those terms about the, the things that life had in common and yet the mechanisms for making things different. And uh, it's, it's really embodied in this genetic toolkit for the, for the animal kingdom.
0: Can we go into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of how this happens? Oh, by the way, you have a lovely, there's a uh, um, a lovely quotation that you cite. Uh, it's not from you, and I forget who this is. Uh, someone who said, what is true of E. coli is true of the elephant, <laughs> um, which is yeah. a lovely way of summarizing that. So let's talk about sort of modular body structures and homologous structures. Um, so you start with a trilobite, let's say, and you have everybody's seen, I think, a picture of these trilobites. Well, everyone who's seen Star Trek Discovery, <laughs> at least, um, and you've just got this, these kind of this modular structure. You've got a segment at the top, a few segments in the middle, a segment at the bottom. So how does that begin to? How do those repeated segments begin to kind of? Uh, differentiate and permit variation.
1: Right. So this is the nitty-gritty, and this is where visuals really help, which is why it's a, uh, that book Endless Forms Most Beautiful is the only book where I was able to persuade a publisher to put color inserts in. So uh, I
0: could well, show you I, these things. I, this read, is case it, of, I read it on Kindle and I didn't so I couldn't actually um <laughs> I mean they did have the illustrations, but I can't see them on the Kindle. Um they're too small. And uh I my my pack six gene is feeling a bit old, so I have uh, very focus. Um, so I managed it without pictures. so I think it's possible. Yeah. That's sorry, okay. go on.
1: Whether it's a trilobite or whether it's a lobster or something like this, the, the the big group of animals to which these both belong is called arthropods, and arthropods have these segmented, very modular bodies. And if you sort of look from front to back, head to tail, it has a bunch of appendages sticking out of the head has antennae and mouth parts and all that. And then on what's called the thorax, it will have walking legs or swimming appendages and other things on the abdomen. And if you think about all of the what you think about spiders and horseshoe crabs and trilobites and lobsters and shrimp and all this stuff, what is going on in this group is that you're playing with the number and kind of appendages that stick off of the body. And the number and kind means you might have different numbers of pairs of legs. In the most extreme case, think of a centipede or millipede, which is almost all legs, you know, all the way down. Um, In other cases, like flying insects, you put just, you know, wings or one or two pairs of wings, depending on the type of insect, you know, on the thorax. How is this done? And the way it's done is there's a key group of genes called the Hox genes that sort of lay out in overlapping ways the identity of each body segment from the front to the back of the animal. They're turned on during development in such a way that they differentiate essentially each segment one from another. And the products of those genes, the Hox proteins, actually direct the development of those individual segments. So that if a given segment is going to have legs, that's under the control of a particular hox gene. If it's going to lack legs, that's under control of another hox gene, and so forth. And this is so abundantly evident when you mutate these hox genes and you get freaks. So um, in fruit flies, for example, there's a hox gene that if you mutate it, the, the antennae on the head are transformed to legs. So the fly has legs sticking out of the top of its head, or it can get an extra pair of wings, et cetera. And that's telling us that's how we sort of learned that there's a small subset of genes that determine the identity of segments down the main body axis from head to tail. Those very same counterparts of those very same genes determine the identity of the parts of our body from head to tail down our main body axis so that everything that comes off of certain sort of level in the vertebral column, that's Um, specified by a certain combination of Hox genes. As you walk right down our vertebral column from our um, uh, cervical to thoracic to sacral vertebrae, all those regions of our body are demarcated in the same way by, by a very similar set of genes. So we know that there's really a general mechanism for controlling the differentiation of modular body parts down the main body axis of both our group of animals called vertebrates, um, as well as arthropods and many, many other groups of animals.
0: Yeah, we have like arms coming off where they have their four legs or their in insects, their four wings, etc.
1: Right, that's right. So the position, this is all about spatial information. It's So how do you decide where to put, um, you know, as you said, the limbs? where our forelimbs and hindlimbs go, right? So our arms are forelimbs, our legs are hindlimbs. They are homologous to the forelimbs and hindlimbs of, of four-legged animals. How are those positioned? Hox genes determine where those go. So it's really almost like a, I, I kind of give a, it's almost like a GPS coordinate system for the body, which is to say, well, along the main axis, where do these body parts go? And then there's another axis, which is The dorsal ventral axis so the top and bottom of the animal and you want to say well some things are put up top and some things are put down on the bottom our dorsal surface which we'll call our back and our ventral surface which we often call our stomach but it's actually the whole surface the whole ventral surface so you can think there's essentially a a genetic um a a gene-guided process that specifies virtually every position in the body in three dimensions and determines what goes on in that part of the body. Is that where you, you know, at this particular position of the body, is that where you put the heart? At this position, position of the body, is this where the kidneys go or the spleen or whatever that is? So when you think about the building of the body, you know, what has to unfold from a single fertilized egg, what has to unfold is to put all these tissues and body parts in the right positions and in the right order um, you know, in the course of development, uh, a marvelous, still astonishing process, but we have learned so much about it in the last 40 years of how how exactly it's done.
0: And it's also one of the things that you outline in the book, and you have a lovely uh, analogy for this, which I'd like to cite. Um, you talk about something called Williston's Law, which is, um, I'll cite it here, the parts of an organism tend towards reduction in number with the fewer parts greatly specialized specialized in function. Um, But what this means in practice is that, and stop me if I explain this wrong, so I'm just kind of checking that I've understood it correctly. Um, If you have multiple segments um, and say legs sticking out of all three segments, then you have a little bit of, because you have that redundancy, you have this kind of extra legs, quote unquote, um, you have a bit more leeway to experiment. So you could try making one pair of the legs into antennae, um, because if that doesn't work, you you can still walk. Um, and you compare it, I think, to the evolution of cutlery. So
1: <laughs>
0: people probably yeah. began by eating with, for example, um, well, they began by tearing things with their hands and stuff. Um, but you know, whilst I was at Cambridge just shortly after we invented fire and we were cooking things, we probably started by just spearing things with a knife. And then people had two knives because you can then hold things down with the one knife and cut them with the other knife. And because you had two knives, you could start experimenting with one of the knives because only one knife is needed for cutting. So the other knife was replaced and became this Two pronged fork, which was more effective for for spearing. So it's like if you have a spare thing, then you can experiment, and that answers this hoary old question about what the use is of half an eye. Does that am I am I explaining that well?
1: Yes, you're explaining very well. That that redundancy, and this is the thing about modular bodies, is that you know if you imagine something, as you said, has multiple sets of legs. The other thing you could do is think of the third set of legs and lots of insects, they may be longer than the first two sets of legs. So how do you do that? How do you get a grasshopper, right? With with long, powerful hind legs that can, you know, jump a long distance. It allows you to to specialize one body part, leaving the other body parts sort of alone, or leaving the other modules alone. And so often when people have been baffled, the the you brought up the 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 old saw about the eye, you know, that. People have trouble imagining how evolution shapes you know, something from nothing. Well, it doesn't usually shape something from nothing. It just it models something that's, that's already there. And when it has redundancy, it has sort of the freedom to maintain the old function while exploring new. And in the case of eyes, it's a piece of the nervous system that was shaped into a light-sensing neuron. That's really the funda- what fundamentally builds up eyes. So once you had neurons, then you could specialize in these neurons for detecting light, for detecting chemicals in, in smell and things like this, detecting touch when you wire them up to the exterior of the body. So the key invention was a neuron, and then you just found different ways to, to, to make these neurons different to sensitive, to different kinds of um, inputs. And so redundancy is a, a sort of a, a key to innovation because it, it, does give you the, it does give organisms this freedom to sort of explore more space if you like more sort of anatomical space than if they had just one copy of something. And, you know, that was essentially, you know, it was constrained to have to do some, you know, some single function. And so when, when you look you know, when you, when you think of a modular body, I am always struck by looking like marine reptiles in, in museums that have these fantastic, you know, backbones that run on forever and they have mm. these incredibly long digits and all the fingers essentially look identical. And now think about, you know, are some of our favorite animals, you know, pigs and cows and humans and things that where, you know, where our digits are specialized. And all we've done is we've taken a repeated part and, and specialize it, you know, our thumb and forefinger, et cetera. And, um, so it's, you know, once you figure out how to make a finger and if you've got a bunch to work with and our deep ancestors probably had eight fingers on most of their limbs, um, well then you've, you've, you've got a way to, uh. You know, to come up with 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 all sorts of variety. So redundancy, rep- repetitive body parts, have been is a, is a really important platform, sort of building the diversity of the animal kingdom. And arthropods and vertebrates just show this in the most magnificent way.
0: Hmm. Other um, fingers is the development of the fingers governed by chemical gradients, like. Whatever is closest to the source will become a thumb, and whatever is mo- furthest will become a, a little yes. finger.
1: So there are molecules again, recently discovered. The first one in 1993, um, that these are as as the limb buds are forming. So the, our limbs and, and eventually our hands come from tiny little buds of tissues that bud out of the side of the embryo as we're developing, and as every other four legged animal is developing, and as fish even develop, they have these buds. And those buds have a polarity to them because you can think about our hands. We have, a, we have a thumb to pinky polarity. If you just hold your hands out to your side and you say, okay, the thumb is pointing forward that's, 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 that's um, and, the, and the pinky at the back, that polarity, how does that get set up? Well, there are molecules um, that are uh, expressed in the developing limb bud that establish a gradient across that limb bud And high levels of that chemical have a different influence on cells than the low levels of that chemical. And that's what gives us the polarity of our fingers, um, uh, thumb to pinky. And if you mess with that molecule, some wild things can happen. You get extra fingers. You get sets of fingers where the polarity is reversed, et cetera. So this is how we sort of, we learn how these things work sometimes from what goes wrong. But, um, in any case, uh, uh, you know, this is how that body of knowledge is, is built up. But the, the beautiful thing to picture is that, you know, as, as animals are developing, what's unfolding is that each step in the developmental process is sort of a template for the next step. And as you lay down these molecules, then cells are responding in the building of the digits. And as those digits are built, you also get information, which is, you, know, you, have, to, you have to lay out the segments of the digit, right? The knuckles and you know, the relative length of the digits and all this sort of thing. You know, we look at the body, it's a marvelous thing, but something has to regulate, you know, the size, shape, um composition of every part of the body and, and this is all knowable um to biology now. It, 40 years ago a complete black box.
0: Yeah. The 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 really the really striking insight it it seems to me is that the or one of one of the many very striking insights that I got out of your book is that evolutionary change is is change in the um embryo. Because it's changes in the embryo that create changes in the in in the in the animal, um,
1: right? Where- it's, it's, we don't think about it that much, but mm. that, that's simple. You know, development is the making of an individual, mm. and to change how an individual appears. I'm only talking about appearance now. I'm talking about form. I'm not talking about physiology or you know digestion. I'm really talking about you know the, the physical anatomy of a being. That's a product of development. So changes in that anatomy are changes in development. And that's what we've been trying to figure out. How do changes in development give us the great diversity of the, of the animal kingdom? And um, it's a beautiful story.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us something about how the um, this GPS system develops in the embryo? That was one of my favorite parts of the book.
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's sort of, uh, you know, there's lots of analogies you can use, but um, you know, because you, you you start with simple asymmetries of information, say in the egg, and that, that gives you the cues to set up yet more parts of the system. And so you're sort of over time continually subdividing the body into finer and finer sort of domains, finer and finer territories, the way you might sort of think about the way you divide, you know, a globe into longitude and latitude, or you might divide, you know, a country up into postal codes. You need to know you know, where you, you know, you need to specify different areas of the body and what's going to take place in those. And it's, it's really set in motion by initial sort of asymmetric information in the egg or the early fertilized embryo and unfolds because genes are responding to those asymmetries and building yet more asymmetries, building yet more differences between the body. And it just cascades. So there's a, and say the building of a fruit fly body early on, there's really only information that says front, back, top, bottom. But from that information, genes can respond along that axis and say, okay, I'm I'm more towards the front. I'm another gene is more towards the middle. i another gene is more towards the back. And then that gives you information that says, okay, this is back, but not all the way back. Let's now start subdividing the back, and um, it's just this progressive subdivision in a, in a finer and finer scale. That's that's what this genetic program is doing in the in the process of of development. And as I said, it, whether it's longitude, latitude, or, or postal codes, whatever you prefer, um, what's specified is really virtually every position within a developing body. And that's how you put the right things in the right place, <laughs> which is really important.
0: <laughs> I'd like to um, return. So, just returning to your book, a series of fortunate events as we maybe wrap up this podcast, you say chance continues to reign every day over the razor-thin line between our life and our death. Could you give us some of the more surprising, a couple of maybe the more surprising or more striking ways in which that is true?
1: Well, let let me talk about first fortunate events and then unfortunate events. So the fortunate event is our individual existence. So a quick little pop quiz you know, how many genetically distinct children could any human couple have? How many distinct siblings could you have had from one set of parents? And the answer is, it has to do with the sorting of chromosomes between our our, our parents. And each parent contributes 23 chromosomes to, to one, to the sperm and to the egg respectively. And you think, well, and they have two copies of each of these chromosomes. So maybe you think, you know, 23 different children, 46 different children. I don't know, 92 different children. No, the answer is over 70 trillion mm-hmm. genetically distinct babies. So each one of us is a one in70 trillion event of what our own parents could have made. So that's just how unique we are. We are. It means that no fertilized human egg, no two fertilized human eggs on the face of the earth will ever be the same. That's that's the source of our uniqueness, and you might say the source of our good fortune that each one of us is individually alive. In terms of unfortunate events and reigning over that thin line, this same genetic mechanism we talked about, a mutation that gives us the individual variation, that gives us the diversity of humans, the diversity of all life on the planet, that process keeps going every time we copy DNA in our cells as we make more white blood cells, as we make more skin cells, as we make more stomach cells. And mutations pile up over our lifetime, such that at age 70 or so, we have 100 times greater chance of having cancer than at age 30. Because cancer is a genetic disease. Cancer is due to mutations and genes that govern the behavior of cells. And there's about 150 genes in our genome that we know about, that when mutated in particular ways can contribute to the making of a cancer. So cancer is, if you want to say, it, it's sort of, the, sort of the bad luck side effect or collateral aspect of this diversity-generating mechanism of mutation, and of course it, it's going to affect a significant fraction of us individually and affects all of us in terms of our families um but this is really just the byproduct of of living a long life and of cells going through replication after replication after replication where those mutations can pile up so that those skin cells on our face at age 70 have a lot more mutations in them than the skin cells on a baby's face and some of those mutations may lead to the uncontrolled growth of those skin cells and a and a medical problem so um that's that's what i mean by that razor thin margin is that and it's just a matter of luck where those mutations happen. It's a matter of luck which individual gets a combination of mutations that, you know, take off and form a form a tumor. Um, but you know, it's it's a double you know our our chance existence has is double edged.
0: Thank you so much, Sean. So I would very much um, recommend both books. The book on chance: a series of fortunate events, is quite a light and easy read, even though it's not dealing with um, a sim- a simplistic or overly simplified ideas. But it's uh, it's definitely, um, you can definitely listen to it as an audiobook while you're running, which is how I consumed it. The Evo Devo book is rather more complex um, and intellectually challenging, but also is uh really exciting and for me so i had i went to a talk on evo devo maybe 15 years ago at um the natural history museum and i remember hearing about hox genes and spemann's organizer and various other <laughs> bits and bobs um of concepts but i i didn't realize until i read your book how patchy my understanding um, of the basics of the of the Evo Devo basics was. Even though I had this vague feeling that I understood some of it, it sounded familiar. It wasn't it wasn't revelatory, but nevertheless, I hadn't um I don't think that I understood it anything like as clearly uh as I did after reading your book, because the book is just um these are Challenging concepts, but they were explained with um, just beautiful clarity and um I always recommend uh, people if if you are feeling anxious or depressed or antsy, um, if you are depressive like me and this is a frequent state or if you just feel that way because of lockdown, I highly recommend you go and read some popular science because there is nothing more. Calming and more liable to leave you with a sense of beauty and awe, and um, um, the the endless forms most beautiful book is absolutely in that category. The chapter on butterfly wing markings, which we haven't talked about, um, but I just advise everyone to go straight out and read it. It's it was it was just um, inspiring and lovely and very very elegantly written. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks, you, Iana. I think this is one of the best things that science has to offer our culture, which is you mentioned—inspiration and a sense of beauty and and awe. Um, some of the stories we tell are truly astonishing, and they can only be told, you know, through through scientific discovery. And uh, I I love the challenge of of trying to tell those stories to the broadest audience possible. So, thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.